Before we get started for this week's show, we'd like to thank you all for tuning in with a special shout out to those who support us on Patreon. From just $2 US a month as a patron, you can access extended podcasts and other bonus content. On this week's show, we have part one of our chat with Will Glenwright of the ICC, and we wrap news around the emerging game. Stick around. Hello and welcome again to the Emerging Cricket Podcast online and on Sport FM in Perth. I'm Daniel Beswick. I'll be joined by Tim Cutler and Nick Skinner in a few moments' time to chat to Head of Global Development of the International Cricket Council, William Glenwright. But for now, a wrap of news around the world. First, the UK and Dutch women's international Sarah Callis will feature in the Rachel Hayhoe Flint Trophy final for the Northern Diamonds on Sunday, taking on the Southern Vipers. Callis will head into the final off the back of back-to-back 50s. Meanwhile, Scotland's Sarah and Catherine Bryce missed out on the final with the Lightning, though not through the fault of the sisters who dominated the tournament. Sarah finished the tournament as the second-highest run scorer with 395 runs at an average of 79, while Catherine finished the tournament with the most wickets with 14 at an economy of under four. Staying in the UK and on the men's side, emerging players have performed admirably across the T20 blast. Dutchman Tim van der Hoogten leads the charge with 14 wickets at an economy of under eight, with compatriot Fred Klaassen a wicket behind heading into action next week. On the batting side, Andy Balburnie fell agonisingly short of a century for Glamorgan, finishing 99 not out from 54 balls against Gloucestershire. Balburnie's made 255 runs at a strike rate of almost 145, while Ireland teammate Paul Sterling has compiled two 232 runs at a strike rate of almost 160. Elsewhere, Dutch veteran Ryan Tendiscada at Essex averages over 50 for the tournament, despite a higher score of just 52. To the game in Europe, and Svanholm has claimed the Danish entry for the 2021 European Cricket League, defeating Skanderborg by nine wickets in a tournament playoff. Svanholm chased down a target of 173 for the tournament spot and will represent Danish cricket again after appearing in the inaugural ECL last year. Meanwhile, European Cricket Series has travelled to Portugal for the first time with the Cartaxo Series featuring six teams being played this week. And finally, the first piece of domestic silverware of the new season in Namibia has been won by the Vintook High School Old Boys winning the Sixers tournament, defeating CCD Tigers in the final. For more news, head over to EmergingCricket.com. But next, part one of our chat with Will Glenwright, Head of Global Development for the International Cricket Council. How you going guys? It's Ben Haradine here, Australia's favourite discus thrower. Yoga emerging cricket podcast or Prata Lifter Cricket. Well, the guests keep coming thick and fast here at the Emerging Cricket Podcast, and we're grateful to welcome yet another one this week. Ooh. From Dubai, the head of global development for the International Cricket Council, Will Glenwright, thank you for joining us and welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Great to be here, finally. It has been a long time coming. Uh, yeah, we've... <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like that's a little bit on me now. I, you know, like I said, we've got the production values. I think, I think we've proved that we can get a couple of shows out, so it's, uh, it's good to finally have Will on. No, not at all. Long, long-time listener of the podcast. Um, thoroughly enjoyed it, so just good to be on it, I guess, and um, return serve on a couple of issues, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we've got our questions and you've got your replies ready to go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Tell us a little bit about your background, first of all, William. I understand you worked in rugby before being appointed uh, by the ICC in 2016. How did you move into the role and what uh, elaborate a little bit more on your, on your sporting background and, and cricketing background? 
Yeah, okay. Uh, well, I think the best way to describe my cricketing background is a, is a weekend warrior, and that's about as good as it gets, and that's true of pretty much all of my sporting pursuits, Daniel. Um, but went to school in Sydney and then did a sports administration degree down in Canberra, and from there went and worked at the Australian Institute of Sport, which was fantastic, and I was there for about 10 years and finished up as a manager of their international relations department, um, which managed effectively the Australian government's sport for development programs in the Pacific Islands, the Caribbean and, and Africa. And, and during that time, I was lucky to work at two Olympic Games at the organising committee for Sydney Olympics on Sir and also the Athens Games, which were um, two fantastic uh, experiences. And I, I see all the uh, commentary in the Australian media at the moment, I think celebrating 20 years uh, since the uh, the start of the Sydney Olympics, which brings back many fond memories. But um, it was probably those experiences in that time working in the Pacific Islands and Africa and the Caribbean where I started to understand just how powerful sport is as a tool for communities and community development. And, and I guess took the decision there that um, it was something that I wanted to work in uh, longer term. I never, despite doing a sports administration degree, I never felt I'd be in the, in the industry in, in perpetuity, but I very much see myself there now and I hope I can stay here. Um, and then so from the International Relations Department at, at the AIS, moved to World Rugby yeah, as General Manager of, of Asia and Oceania. And, and really not dissimilar a function or role to what we do here at the International Cricket Council. The role is to, is to grow the game and it's to grow the international competitiveness of the game. Rugby, like cricket, is a sport I played as a, as a kid, so I was familiar with it and enjoyed it and, and believed. And I think that is something that cricket and rugby do have in common with few other sports, and that is the value set of the sports, um, the respect for the umpire, the referee's decision, sportsmanship, um, which is a big part of the ethos of, of both sports, and, and I think is a very powerful, I guess, defining characteristic of both sports and, and makes it more readily easy to grow in sort of non-traditional non-traditional countries but anyway so i was at i was at world rugby for um just on 10 years i think worked at three rugby world cups which i, I think are fantastic events and then the opportunity at the icc came up and um, always a sport that i felt has had enormous potential to to grow it's very adaptable all the reasons that you and your listeners would know but that that is the beauty of the sport not only at the elite level but the ease in which the game can be played and adapted to be played in in just about any condition so I always felt as a sport it had enormous growth potential so when an opportunity came up to lead the global growth of the sport within world rugby I was focused on Asia and, and Oceania then you know well I leapt at the opportunity I guess with um you know with both feet uh, as I said, it's a sport I played as a, as a kid and through school and, um, and at university, very passionate about it. And it's great to be able to work in it, you know, full time. So you've talked a bit about how you got into the job. What actually is the job? You know, so what do you typically do over the course of a, a little while? And what's the kind of uh, day to day for a, a head of development? Yeah, okay. Um, so the responsibility of the development department, which is the, the department that I work in, is effectively to manage the investment that we make in our associate members. So as, as you'd be aware, there are two categories of membership within the ICC. There are the 12 full members, which are the test playing countries, and then there's the 92 associate members. And as a sport, we make uh, a significant investment in the growth of the game in those associate members. And um, the role of our department is is to manage that investment to work with the members on the growth of the game. And, and really that 
we work in four main areas, I guess, in doing that. We want more boys and girls, men and women playing the game, so increasing participation and also increasing the engagement of the game, so not only participants but through fans as well. Um, we want the performance of the associate members to improve in international competition. We want our members playing more international cricket, either through bilateral cricket or in ICC events. And we went when we want our members operating with robust governance and administration or administrative um, procedures. And, and that's effectively where our, our work focuses on in those four areas. Uh, we have a, a global development team, which comprises a small team based here in, in Dubai. And then we have five regional offices, which again is not dissimilar to how most international federations are structured. So we have a, a Europe office, Africa, Americas, East Asia, Pacific and, and Asia. Um, and each of those offices are, are, are staffed with a team that is, you know, incredibly diverse. And I think one of the things I really enjoy about the job I have is, is working with a staff with an extraordinarily diverse background in experience in and out of, of cricket. So on our team, we've got test captains, we've got World Cup winners, we've got players that have played international cricket for associate members, we've got staff that have worked for associate members, we've got staff that are from outside uh, the cricket and sporting backgrounds and people with investment banking backgrounds and data backgrounds, people that are experts in, in growing participation. So... Um, amongst the team, which is 19 staff that work full time on the growth of the game within our associate members, we have yeah great diversity. And across the the depth and breadth of, of that team, I think we have a, a skill set that is just about mobilised to help members with whatever their um, their assistance may be. And, and we're moving very much towards a member focused um, assistance program. We can talk more about that uh, a little later, I'm, I'm sure. But to do that, you need to have a diverse range of skills on your, on your team. And we've got that. Um, so that's the structure of the team, I guess. And then what does a, what does a day look like for me? Well, I guess it's a matter of balancing, you know, with the team spread all around the, the world, it's a, it's a matter of balancing how you check in with the team. It's the global development team, our five regional officers that are at the, you know, they're at the forefront of the work with the members. They're the ones that have the, the seven day a week relationship with the members. They develop really close working relationship with them and have a have the strongest understanding within the organisation of what the, the needs are of the, of the members. So it's important for us here in head office to keep our finger on the pulse, understand what the issues are and what some of the emerging trends might be that we might need to address because I guess the best way to summarise it is the role of our team here in the head office is to develop the products and the programs that are used to grow the grow the game and it's the role of the regional team to roll out those programs in partnership you know with the members um, and that's probably the the simplest way of, of doing it so my day is mixed up with, you know, we have regular, we have a weekly check-in with each of our five regional teams. And then there are numerous updates throughout the week on, you know, our product development. So at the moment, we're working on our training and education program, which is aimed to make it easier for members to train and accredit more coaches and umpires. There's our entry-level program for schools and, and a number of programs around governance and, and commercial development. So we've got teams that are designated to develop those programs and we have regular product up, update meetings with them. And then, like anyone, I guess, you try to carve out a bit of time each day just to think about the sort of broader issues and, and what the strategic issues of the day might be at the moment. Uh, for us, we've got all eyes on, on 2021, budgets for 21 and, and operational plans for 21. It's not necessarily the, the sexiest of work, but it's, uh, but it's important. And particularly in this current environment that we're operating in, uh, with great uncertainty, it's, um, it's, it's difficult but important. 
So it seems that a large part of you know the head office job is sort of a level of oversight to things that are sort of already happening. You know, what's the procedure for enforcement? You know, you mentioned one of your uh, roles as the development team is is um, setting administrative standards for members. So how do you guys go about you know enforcing those rules or keeping an eye on on the administrations? Yeah, so I guess we're guided by two main documents in that regard. There's the overall membership criteria, and it's criteria that all members, be it full and associate members, are required to abide by in order to maintain their status as an ICC member, and that's broken down in the constitution. And there are elements of of that that our members are assessed against on a on a regular basis. So that's the sort of governance compliance, membership compliance, and then you've got your funding compliance. As I said, we we make a very large investment in our members, uh, over thirty million dollars a year in direct funding goes to our associate members each year. It's the second largest investment of any sport in the um, in the growth of its sport. And for all the criticism that we may cop about whether that's whether it should be more, it is still a, a significant investment that we make. And, and that's governed by a, a funding policy that stipulates the, the reporting requirements that members are, are required to comply with in order to continue to receive their funding. So thinking about some of the initiatives that you do run and imparting them on the the regions around the world, when you put together your plans, I'm sure you have to report to to people above to to get them um, to approve on things. So who do you report to and, and what's the process there? So personally, I report to the CEO and then as a department, we have a reporting line to the development committee, which is a, a subcommittee of the board of the ICC, which comprises uh, full member representatives as well as representatives of the associate members. The development committee provides um, and helps set the strategic direction for the game. It's with the development committee that we have discussions around the funding model. So as and when there are um, changes being considered to how we structure the funding model with the members, that's discussed um, and approved by the development committee. Likewise, the competition structures. So when we're in a situation where we want to review competition structures and, and models, that's a discussion that's had with the development committee as well. And, and then that then flows through uh, the chain of command, I guess, within our, within our governance structure. And ultimately, the ultimate decision-making authority is the board. Um, but on a day-to-day basis, I report to the CEO. So yes, we, we establish our our operations plans for each of our five regions and of course our central plan and and we report against that to the CEO you know in a way that reflects the the strategic direction that's provided by the board the ICC strategy and of course Devcom so just on that um, you know the relationship with the board and and the decision making process one of the things about the ICC that's um, sort of a bit unique in in sporting bodies is that there's sort of two sides to the ICC you know there's there's the four members making decisions at the board level and then there's the dev team who are kind of doing things um, a, a little bit separately and and they need to run it through the board to 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 get things approved so i guess you know, what's the, um, you know, the, the line from someone in the dev team maybe having an idea to getting it fully implemented? Because there's, there's sort of two sides of the organization that it needs to go through. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. I think ultimately we're, we're guided by the, the ICC strategy. That's a strategy that, that's developed and approved by the, the ICC board. Our role as a department as are all departments within the organisation, is to, is to turn that strategy into, into operational plans and, and make it a reality. And, and the st- current strategy and, this, and the strategy that's under development um, explicitly focused on the growth of the, of the game. So I do think there is a, um, there is a misconception that as an organisation or, or that there is a disconnect between what the board want and what us as a team want. I don't think that's um, it at all. The board are absolutely, by way of approving and 
yeah, signing off on the on the strategy and delegating the delivery of that strategy to us, the board are absolutely, you know, there's full alignment right throughout the organisation around how we grow the game. But I think that, I think you made an, an interesting observation, Nick, in terms of, you know, what is the role of the member? And we're definitely trying to shift the narrative that we have with our with our members. I think previously there's been a view particularly within the, within the membership, to wait for the ICC to tell us what to do and then, and then we will go and, and do it. And certainly we're trying to change that. I mentioned before about our, you know, our investment in the, in the associate members, a $30 million in investment. As well as that, there are the indirect investment that we make in the game and, and the associate members, which is our operating budget, the central costs, and also the, the investments that we make in the tournaments. But the bulk of our investment that we make in the associate members as an international federation is in the direct grants to the members. And so we can only achieve the objectives of the strategy. We can only achieve the ambitious growth targets that we've set for the game through an effective partnership with the, with the members. And so the conversations that we're now trying to have with the members is, is not so much what does the ICC want. We're very clear on what we want. As I mentioned before, we want more, more boys and girls playing the game. We want our teams to be more competitive on the international stage. We want our members playing more international cricket. And we want our members operating, you know, with strong and effective governance and administrative principles and procedures. But what do the what do the members want? How the member grows the game within each of their countries needs to be driven by them. They're the experts. They're the ones delivering the programs 365 days a year. And we need to be more agile, I think, and more receptive to what those strategies are within within each country. So I'll give you an example. You take Thailand, for example, which has taken very much a, a high performance uh, approach to to growth within Thailand and with great success. So much of their much of their program is focused on the performance of their um, national women's team in international competition, and as a result of the success of that team, we're now starting to see a, a growth in, in grassroots participation. And that's a different approach that the, the country like Bhutan are taking. Now Bhutan have focused very much on d domestic participation, creating a critical mass of, of young boys and girls playing the game and are only now starting to focus on creating the high performance pathways within their, within their country. Now, there is no right or wrong model around that. What our role increasingly is, is ensuring that we've got the tools and the programs and the subject matter experts that ensure that regardless of what the approach that any member is taking to grow the game in their country, um, that we are able to support them in that and provide them with the tools to, to be able to, to do that. So Nick, I guess to answer your question, what we're trying to do is, is move away more from the a, a top-down ICC-driven um, growth approach and more to a, I wouldn't say bottom down, but a, a 92 associate member driven global growth strategy. And that's why I don't think there is a, there is a disconnect. And in fact, I think that that link between the game and, and the members and member driven growth is as strong as it's ever been. You talked about the $30 million that is invested. And I, I think for the benefit of everyone listening, I know we, we've touched on it in the past. We've talked about the ICC scorecard and, and also tournament grants. Can you talk a little bit about that in the background that is actually ranking associate members and also what goes into the consideration of that scorecard? Okay, so I guess the, the investment that we make, there are two components to the investment that we make in the associate members. There's the direct funding investment and then there's indirect funding. There's two components to direct funding. That's a scorecard grant and the competition grant. Scorecard grant is an assessment of what we call off-field performance. That is the number of participants they have playing the game, uh, the number of 
uh, coaches and umpires that they have in the game, the number of facilities, turf and artificial pitches, the number of staff, and the amount of um, non-ICC income they generate as an indicator of sustainability. Competition grant is a measure of on-field performance. The better a member performs in ICC events, the higher that grant is. So how, depending on the event that a member qualifies for determines how much of a competition grant that they get. And the split between those two is roughly two thirds and a third. So two thirds of that investment is made through the scorecard grant. One third is made through the competition grant. The indirect funding is the investment that I mentioned earlier is managed out of here at the head office. So that's the development department budget and our competitions budget. So it doesn't actually land as dollars in the, in the accounts of our, of our members. So the, and then I guess an underlying principle then of the direct funding scorecard and competition grant is that it's meritocratic. And by that, we mean each member is assessed relative to their performance against the other members. So each member in each of the categories is ranked from one to uh, 92 at the end of the scorecard assessment depending on where they are ranked, will determine how much funding they get. So within the scorecard, there are 13 categories of assessment, which are measures that we feel best demonstrate the performance of the member in growing the game on the ground. So it's things like senior participants, male, female, junior participants, male, female, number of coaches, number of umpires, all the measures that I talked about before, facilities and the like. Each of those measures then are weighted in importance, I guess. They're given a percentage weighting. So for example, a, a singer participant is weighted more heavily than an artificial pitch. Members are then ranked from one to 92 against each of those, in each of those 13 categories, based on census data that they supply to us every year. So the census process is, is undertaken every year, and it's where members report on their activity for that year. As it, so we take again senior participants, for example, a member will member A will say we've we've registered four thousand senior participants. Member A is then ranked based on, on on how that sits relative to the other ninety two members, and then the weightings multiplier is applied uh, to that. And you do that across those thirteen areas, or thirteen categories of, of assessment, and you end up then with members being ranked from one to ninety two. Um, Members are then grouped. Category A receive X amount, category B. So category A being the top four members receive X amount, category B being the next four members receive X amount, uh, and so on and so forth down to member number 92. And then competition grant is, 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 as I mentioned, there's the suite of ICC events that we have, depending on what event a member qualifies for and how they perform in that tournament, they receive that allocation that is attached to that particular tournament. So then a member's overall funding is determined by their scorecard grant plus their competition grant, and that's released to members on an annual on an annual basis. There's a, a lot of data there that you've gone through with different lines of, of criteria, and it's good to see women's participation. I think it's been in, I think, five years or so. It must have been just when I started Hong Kong. I'm trying to get it right in my head, maybe a little bit after that. I think I'll come back to how that's changed and how it will change moving to a more member-focused model. But with all this data being self-reported, how much time is taken with you actually sanitizing and checking data? And are there big issues with integrity around data? Because, you know, we're talking about funding for cricket nations and we could be talking tens or hundreds of thousands of difference. You know, what are the challenges like there? Yeah, look, I think that the challenges are significant and you'd know better than most, Tim, are, um, you know, about those. They're it is a self-reporting system. There is a level of robustness that exists and we have an auditing function that 
we feel adequately allows us to check and cross-check the data that is submitted by the members. But as you've alluded to, at the end of the day, the quality of the data is as only as good as the information or, or the, I guess, the data capture tools that each of our members um, have access to. And they vary in levels of sophistication from some of our top members who have excellent data capture tools to other members that are, are working off, uh, off Excel spreadsheets. And, and that's not a criticism. It's sometimes it's a, it's an economic reality because databases are you know incredibly expensive to build and and purchase and that's what you know as we talk about moving to a member a more member focused strategy or approach that's something that we're looking to address is how can we help more of our members given how important uh, data and data capture is to uh, the determination of funding for our members uh, is there a way in which we can either centrally purchase a database or build a system that can be provided to all of our members in a cost-effective way that allows us to better protect the, the data that comes in for the, um, you know, from the census process. Now, with that said, it, it remains a, a strong model. We have an, an audit function and an inter-regional audit function that's used to check a large amount of the, the data that comes in. So, for example, when a member claims to have X number of participants, as part of that audit, audit function, we request the provision of score sheets, competition records, and the like that allow, enable us to do a spot check on, on those participation figures. And we also have mechanisms built into the system so that where there is a significant increase or decrease in numbers within a given year, so for example, there is a, a 10% increase in participation, and that automatically triggers a, a spot check where we will go in and verify both the previous year's data and the current year's data. But that is a very uh, intensive process and, and that verification process, because it is so important, does take up an extraordinary amount of time of, of our team, particularly the finance and operations officers that exist within each of the regions. And there is a better system out there and it's one of our priorities um, over the next uh, year and a half is to look at either building or purchasing a system that improves it, not only for us, but more importantly for the members. Speaking of numbers, numbers going up, numbers going down, if we look at all the funding available for the development pot, I think uh, any, well, the, the most sexy is, is cricket administration can get it is at the moment with the ICC looking for a chairman. We've also seen big three reforms and, and them changing and then and the funding model has, has changed a, a lot. I know that the ICC has never officially released how much goes goes to development. The sort of unofficial pieces of the pie seem to get a lot smaller between the years of 2014 and 2016. I guess the question is really about how that impacts a passionate, and I can speak that from, from personal experience, passionate, dedicated development team put under funding pressures themselves and how you find the nuanced world of advocating for development teams progress in, in a world where sometimes things are being taken away from you. Well, that's a loaded question, Tim. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'll put my soapbox back under the table, but answer as much as you can there. Look, um, this is an unpopular opinion. I don't think as a sport we have a money problem. I do think we have in that, and I compare it to the amount, um, you know, the budgets that we used to work with at World Rugby. As I mentioned before, you know, the ICC investing, only FIFA spends more on the growth of its game than, than the ICC. For me, the challenge is not the quantum of funding per se. And I know a lot of your listeners and a great deal of our members would probably disagree with me on that. I think the challenge for us is how that, that money is, is invested. And so, so I'll give you an example um, based on the, you know, the data that's coming out of last year's census, which we're just closing off now. 
Now, 7% of our members contribute just over 50% of, of our participants, which is a great result. It's not necessarily unique to cricket. You see that in, an, in most sports, actually, where your large concentration of your participants are focused on a relatively small number of, of members. The challenge we're facing is that around a third of our members are experiencing static or declining participation rates. So there's an argument that the funding model isn't solving the problem for all of our members. And one of the things we want to look at in partnership with, of course, or in consultation with the development committee is, can we come up with a system that is better equipped to ensure that all members are, are able to grow the game? To do that, we need to do a really deep dive into better understanding why it is that participation in, in some members is, is going down or is, or is remaining static. And therefore, can we either through a revised funding model or through the programs that we offer from head office or from the ICC to better equip the members to do that. So I don't think we're ever going to satisfy the quantum of funding debate. Members will always want more money and that's true of the full or the associate members. What I'm focused on and what our department is focused on is can we be more effective with both the spend that goes directly into the members and the services that are provided to the members so that all 92 of our members, regardless of how big or small they are, are able to achieve sustainable growth within their respective countries. So you're making the case, I guess, for you know more effective spending and you're pointing out that obviously cricket is spending uh, quite a lot of money on its development programs. So I guess if it's not the amount that's the problem, you know, why are other sports having apparently more success in spreading their way around the world? You know, you look at rugby, which is where you were working before, or, or, or even basketball, which is um, hugely popular in, in a lot of countries. So, you know, if it's not the amount of money, what's what's the difference? I'm not sure I would necessarily agree with the notion that other sports are more successful or that we are less successful than, than other sports. Um, I mean, we had 14% year-on-year growth in 2018-19. 2019 data suggests um, we've got a 19% year-on-year increase. Participation in all of our metrics are, are going up. There's more international cricket being played by our members. There was a 130% increase in women's bilateral cricket last year. I think 35% increase in men's bilateral cricket last year. 71 of our members played international cricket last year. So I would challenge uh, the hypothesis that we're not being successful in in growing the game. I think the challenge that sits um, before us is are we truly achieving the potential that cricket has? And, and I guess that's what we've got as a sport. So I think our growth trajectory over the years has been excellent. And that's largely down to the work of the, of the members and the work that our global development team do to assist those members. But I think we can be far more ambitious in how we grow the, the game. And I think the potential of cricket in the full members and the associate members for growth is extraordinary. And that's what we're keen to, to unlock and untap. Um, now, I'm not saying that more money won't unlock that potential, but I'm saying it's not, the, it's not the silver bullet. If you don't have the right structures in place, simply throwing more money into that structure isn't going to fix the problem or it's not going to change things. We need to ensure that we've got the right structures in place. So as I said, a, a, a model that enables all of our members to grow the game men's and women's cricket. And that's what we need to focus on. Then I think when we've got that model and structure right, then we can present a case to the board or whomever to increase the pot of funding. Well, you've already talked about it being 20 years since the Sydney Olympics and thinking of things that would supercharge the sport. 
the Olympics is one that, well, I would say is generally accepted when we talk to members and representative of members. And I know you know the stories, but the, what it would mean for the likes of Brazil, Italy, Germany, etc. Um, what's your view on cricket in the Olympics and, and what's the current status? Because I think it's fair to say that the ICC has been very quiet on it of late, if not for maybe at least about the last year. So look, the Olympics, well, firstly, you know, what is the potential of, of the Olympics for the game? It's, it's unquestioned. And, and Nick, you mentioned before about the, the growth of rugby and how much of that can be attributed to Olympic inclusion. I, I think is unquestioned as, as it is for, for all sports. Inclusion in the Olympic Games provides all sorts of benefits, both for the awareness and accessibility of the sport right through to the direct benefits to the to the members. For the members, it provides opportunities for more international competition. And in many members' cases, it unlocks government and private sector funding. So the Olympics remains very much um, a long-term ambition for the sport. But you're right, Tim, the board hasn't had an Olympics discussion over the course of the last year or so, but it remains very much part of the plans, as does cricket's inclusion in all multi-sport games. And, and I think that's how we, we look at the multi-sport game offering, I guess, and its potential for Olympics. It's not just the Olympics. I mean, the Olympics is the game changer, but it's not just the Olympics that can derive those benefits for our members. So the Asian Games, and you'd know this better than the most, Tim, cricket's inclusion on the Asian Games for 2022 is brilliant for our Asian members, many of whom are able to get access to government funding or government facilities and programs as a result of that. So we're on the program for the Asian Games. We're in discussions with the 2026 Asian Games in, in Nagoya around cricket's inclusion there. We're on the Pacific Games. And we're, on, um, we're in discussions with both the All-Africa Games and the Pan-American Games to get cricket included in those. And as you know, we're on the women's program for the 22 Commonwealth Games. So the Olympics remains on the, uh, on the agenda. There is a challenge for us, though, Tim. I mean, the Olympics um, 2032 agenda is focused on reducing the costs of hosting the Games, both for the Olympic movement and for the members. Um, that's focused around capping the number of participants and reducing the infrastructure costs of hosting the games. Now, of course, a cricket competition requires, it's a team sport, so there's a, a large participant footprint or athlete footprint and it would also need to be, you know, if it was T20 or um, or 50 over, would require multiple venues. So there's a lot of work that we need to do around what, what does Olympic inclusion look like for us as a sport, but we are in discussions formal and informal with the Olympic movement and with the organising committee for the Olympic Games, and it does remain a long-term objective for us, as does cricket's inclusion on all multi-sport games, regional and, and sub-regional. One thing I'm interested in is on this Olympic chat, if there was to be more of a cricket Olympic presence and the money that comes from a lot of the National Olympic Committees funding cricket in those particular countries, that would surely take the pressure off you guys a little bit financially to, to ensure that cricket is, is run better in these countries. Is, is that something that you guys keep in mind when talking about you know, taking these games to the regional games first of all and then potentially to the Olympic stage? Yeah, absolutely, Daniel. I mean, a big part of, so going back to the scorecard, a large percentage of the scorecard funding goes to non-ICC income. So, and that's designed to encourage our members 
to attract funding from non-ICC sources, government sponsors and, and the like. Uh, and that's because we recognise that an overly heavily reliance on ICC funding doesn't lend itself to sustainable growth. So any initiative that facilitates, I guess, income and funding and not necessarily direct funding, but, you know, non-direct funding assistance to our members is something we'll look at. And as you've mentioned, you know, Olympic inclusion unlocks all sorts of funding opportunities through governments, through National Olympic Committees, and through the Olympic movement themselves, through the Olympic Solidarity Program. So, and, and that is something that we take into account, of, uh, you know, absolutely. But really the, the main driver for our multi-sport games inclusion program is about the awareness that it creates for the game and the opportunity to unlock either smaller members with large growth potential or members that aren't currently playing cricket. I don't know whether I've answered your question astutely there, Daniel, is that what you're after? No, yeah, no, no, no. I just, yeah, I just think it's, as you said, crucial for a lot of these members to be somewhat self-sustainable in, in the way that they are put together. Because you know, we try to encourage you know everyone to find their own model where they can be self-sustainable on their own right and be supplemented, perhaps by that ICC funding in sort of utopian world. So. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's vital to have multiple income streams and multiple avenues for these countries to fund themselves. And I guess just sort of rounding out this topic of the, uh, the administrative future, you could say, are you guys, I mean, I know the 10-team World Cup is a, is a bugbear for a lot of, or probably all associate fans, you know, and, and I can't help thinking about you know, your, your former sport rugby and, and how they've expanded that and the success stories of, you know, of Japan and Argentina, among others, and how, you know, the expanded tournament has delivered long-term benefits. So I guess, are you guys making that case, you know, to the board to try and, you know, have more opportunities for associates and related to that what sort of uh, strategies do you take to, to try and you know convince them to be you know a bit more favorable towards uh, expansion you know do, do you go with the pragmatic sort of a bigger pie for everyone to get richer or, or do you appeal to their you know idealism and charity to be more altruistic yeah look it's a good question and it's a, a controversial topic I, I guess um but look the 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 10 team world cup well the World Cup is the economic driver for the sport. It's through the World Cup primarily and to a lesser extent, the T20 World Cup that provides us with the funding that we have to invest in the, you know, invest in the game. Um, we also think that in our view, where the game is going to grow internationally is T20 World Cup. And if there's going to be an expansion in, in World Cups, I think therefore it's going to come in the T20 format. So where are we directing our energy, Nick? I think if we're lobbying, it's around building the case to expand the T20 World Cup because that's the format of the game that more of our members are playing, not only internationally, but domestically as well. So there is a, you know, there is that inbuilt high performance pathway that exists in almost all of our members now on account of T20 cricket. Uh, as I mentioned before, 71 of our members played international cricket last year. All of that or most of, the, most of that was through T20Is as well. So for us, I, I think the immediate priority is, is whether we can build a case to expand the T20 World Cup before necessarily focusing on an expanded 50-over World Cup, as I said, because it's the format of the game that most of the members are directing their energy towards, both internationally and, and domestically, and it's the format of the game that, that we feel is um, demonstrates the most potential for uh, the growth of the game. And in terms of the sort of arguments that you, you try and use to convince the board to get on board? Yeah, well, it's so it's not something that we do in isolation. I mean, there's a... the. Um, any decision around the format of our competitions, be it men's and women's 50 over or, or men's and women's T20 World Cups, are all built around 
very detailed analysis of costs of income and importantly player welfare. They're all factors that are taken into, into consideration. Now, what we bring to the table is in that discussion is by opening up participation to say an expanded T20 World Cup, what does that mean for members in terms of, as we mentioned, government funding or private sector funding through sponsorship or the like? And in a way that we've tried to address that through our competition models anyway. So the restructure to the competition program that took place a couple of years ago created a much cleaner and meritocratic qualification process to T20 World Cup. So all of our members, regardless of ranking, are a maximum of three steps away. Now, that in itself is a great development, um, provides clarity for the, for the members and provides a, that clean pathway, I guess, to the T20. I guess now we start doing an analysis around whether or not a, you know, an expanded T20 World Cup is going to further drive you know, the growth of the international game. And that's something that we would do or a conversation that we'd have in consultation with our strategy department, the commercial department, and of course, cricket ops and, and events. So it's a multifaceted approach. It's not necessarily a debate that we drive in isolation as a development department. Um, on that point of the restructure, and, and I think that meritocratic pathway to the T20 World Cup is great and, and how that's opened that up to, I don't think it's necessarily more teams. I think there have been more teams in the structure before, but probably not in such a sort of a direct line of sight. But we also saw the restructure of the World Cricket League as it was, and it's now become the Cricket World Cup Leagues linking into the, the Super League, which is, of course, the 13-team league of all the four members plus the Netherlands and then seven ODI teams and then two Challenge Leagues of six that we, we talk about a lot. And that hard stop at the back end of that of 32 nations now has T20 cricket feeding into it. And I taking that goes in line with you talking about T20 being the growth vehicle. But one of the things that we get asked a lot is about the effect that this has on the global game and, and countries saying that they want to play 50 over cricket. But I'd just really like to know the thinking that went into that structure as we see it now, especially as that bottom end and using T20 as a pathway to 50 over ICC cricket and whether the result of countries playing more T20 is that a symptom of these changes or was that already happening and, and that's why the event was uh, created like this? So I, I think it's already happening and you'd expect me to say that, I guess. And, and it's happening for a number of reasons. And, and Hong Kong's a classic case study, I guess, on this, Tim, is one of the things we're noticing in the discussion with our members is access to facilities is becoming an increasingly difficult roadblock to overcome for members in growing the game domestically. And, you know, a simple equation is a, a 50-over game takes a full day to play on that same facility two t20 games possibly even three t20 games can be played so even just by some of the factors that we possibly hadn't even contemplated a few years ago has seen a natural migration towards t20 cricket so that members can simply facilitate more cricket being played so domestically we're seeing within our members and that's just one example there are you know there are a number of factors that see members moving towards t20 cricket now, the competition structures weren't established in response to that per se. The, when we looked at the whole competition structure, we asked ourselves and were driven by one question. How can we facilitate a structure that allows our members to play more international cricket and more, more meaningful international cricket? And that was the foundation of all discussions across all three formats of the game that we took. So... Opening up T20I cricket, the awarding of, of T20I status to all members, rankings for all members, and a, a meritocratic sub-regional to regional to qualifier to T20 World Cup pathway wasn't done solely because more members are playing T20I cricket. It was motivated as much by the notion that it's this format of the game that will allow our members to play more international cricket and more meaningful international cricket. 
which then brings us on, I guess, to the to the 50 over game and the restructure of World Cricket League. And again, those structures have been put in place for those members that play 50 over cricket and want to play 50 over cricket to play more international cricket and more meaningful international cricket. So Netherlands are in the um, the Super League and I think they're playing, is it... Um, 24 ADIs in the Super League, all against the full members. And then Cricket World Cup League 2 is a total of 126 ADIs. Um, so that's, yeah, 36 ADIs per team. And then Challenge League is List A matches, so 90 List A matches. And so the motivation of that was to provide those teams playing 50 over cricket to play more meaningful cricket and more of it. Now, I think the point you were alluding to, Tim, is not all teams that play 50 over international cricket are included in that competition structure. Japan, I think, is, is one that comes to mind, although there are only one or two. And we have had discussions with those members and we do need to come up with a fix for that. The logistics of organising this tournament and I guess the other element in the model that we wanted to provide the members based on the feedback we got from them was the surety of program over a two and a half year process. The old WCL model was very difficult from a high performance perspective for members to plan on a year by year basis because more often than not, not only were they waiting on the results from their tournament, but they would have to wait on results from another tournament to work out where and when they would be playing in in the following year. From a budgeting perspective, that creates problems, and certainly from a you know an athlete periodisation high performance process, that creates problems for coaches and and managers. So we wanted to provide across those three levels of 50 over cricket a certainty of programming over a two two and a half year basis. The trade off of that, of course, is that you can't include, uh, or we haven't yet come up with a model that can include all the members that play 50 over cricket in that model. So it's an ongoing discussion. It's not to say it's a perfect model that suits everyone, but it's significantly improved. Um, I think it's a brilliant competition model for those members that are participating in. And we do have to find a solution for the likes of Japan, who are still committed to playing 50 over international cricket, because that's something that we absolutely have to encourage. And hopefully, as a result of the expansion of T20i cricket, more and more members come online wanting to play 50 over international cricket, which is absolutely an outcome that we'd welcome. Now, just on the the structure and how you you know you, you said you want more teams playing international fifty over cricket, and you know, I think everyone does. Getting into that that fifty over league currently is done based on T twenty rankings, which you know for one thing, obviously it's a different format and different skills. But another thing to consider is that it, it does throw up some fairly strange results, and and I think you know there has been a lot of uh, analysis that the rankings aren't necessarily uh, as accurate as they could be. Has there been any discussions you know within the dev team about modifying the rankings or, or figuring out a way to, to make them a bit more maybe fit for purpose? So uh, it's it's a good point, Nick. And I don't think it's, as I mentioned before, it's not necessarily the perfect model. I do think some more work needs to be done on that in terms of the qualification process into those 50 over structures. I don't necessarily think the answer is in modifying the T20 rankings system or methodology. That's an incredibly complex model that I won't even, don't even pretend to understand. Well, that, that's sort of the problem. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps it is. I mean, I guess, yeah, um, the, the effectiveness of a ranking system is uh, in part attributable to how easily it can be explained. You know, I accept that. 
But I, I, for me, I think it's remodeling a T20 ranking system uh, to create a, a better pathway into a 50 over competition isn't the solution. It's more around how do we create a more relevant qualification process for teams looking to get into 50 over pathways. Uh, that I think is the challenge for us. I hope it becomes a bigger challenge because one of the outcomes we'd like to see from the expanded T20i pathway is, is more countries playing 50 over cricket. That's the end of part one with Will Glenwright. We'll have part two as well as news around the world next week. Make sure to subscribe to the Emerging Cricket Podcast if you haven't done so already so you can tune in as soon as it drops. Pass the pot around and make sure to give us a five-star review. If you want to support us financially, go to Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Emerging Cricket where you can support us from as little as $2 US a month. You'll get access to extended cuts of a number of our shows and you have a say on the show's direction. For now, on behalf of Nick Skinner, Tim Cutler and myself, Daniel Beswick, see you next week.